This morning, I invite you to draw your sword and turn to Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Acts chapter 8, I'll begin reading at verse 26. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Acts chapter 8, let's begin at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. A disciple is a believer who is passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough. In our story this morning, we come across such a disciple. It's the man named Philip. This is not the first time that we've met Philip. He first appears on the pages of Scripture in Acts chapter 6. He's one of the seven servants raised by the church to minister to the congregation. The only thing that we know about Philip is that he was full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Now, many things can be said about you and me, but the greatest epitaph that could ever be uttered is for someone to say of us that we are full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. This is the man named Philip. When Stephen was executed, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church. Many of these disciples were scattered all throughout the globe. We are told at the beginning of Acts chapter 8 that the man named Philip, he was scattered in connection with the execution of Stephen. Philip went to a Samaritan city and there he proclaimed Christ. 
Now, if you're not careful, you can just gloss over that statement, just merely reading it as a sentence that moves the story along. But that is a monumental statement. Philip went to a Samaritan city and he preached Christ there. Philip is a Greek-speaking Jewish believer, and he goes to a Samaritan city. You recall the last marching orders that Jesus gave to the church. They are given to us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When the early disciples heard that, they got excited because Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's their peeps. That's the people that look like them, walk like them, talk like them, act like them, vote like them, and cheer like them. They love the people in Jerusalem. And Judea, oh, that's exciting. Because now Jesus is going old school. Judea is Old Testament Judah. It's the southern kingdom of Judah. That's the, that's the geographical boundary of where the good guys come from. They got excited about going to Judea. And the end of the earth These are adventurous, seafaring disciples. When Jesus said, you're going to go to the ends of the earth, they got excited about that. But in the midst of all that statement, Jesus said, you'll also be my witnesses in Samaria. When the Jewish believers heard that, they thought to themselves, well, three out of four ain't bad. It's not bad for us to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth, but Samaria? Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated the Jews. This animosity went back 700 years before the coming of Christ. In 722 BC, the Assyrian army invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. They destroyed and deported many of the Israelite men. They imported many Assyrian men. Those Assyrian men married Israelite women. And what was produced was a race called Samaritans. To a devout Jew... A Samaritan was a second-class citizen. If I could just be real frank with you this morning, to a devout Jew, a Samaritan was a half-breed. It wasn't even regarded as, as, a, as a real individual, a real person. You would not give any respect to, no authority at all. In fact, uh, these Jews hated Samaritans so much that following the Babylonian captivity, When people were able to come back and rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, refortify the city, the Jews did not allow the Samaritans to help in the rebuilding of the temple or the rebuilding of the walls around the sacred city. Now, this animosity went both ways. So the Samaritans said, we'll take our own brick and mortar and we'll go build our own temple on Mount Gerizim and they will worship our God. Jews and Samaritans despised each other. You know what I've observed? Love has to be taught, but hatred can be caught. you got to teach somebody how to love, but you don't have to teach them how to hate. The only thing the Jews did is they hated what their parents hated. And the Samaritans just hated what their parents hated. And it went on for 700 plus years. Jesus came along and he blurred the lines. Jesus always has a knack of blurring the lines. In John chapter 4, verse 4, we are told that Jesus had to go through Samaria. That's an odd statement because no Jew had to go through Samaria. I realize that Samaria is sandwiched between Galilee to the north, Judea to the south, but every good Jew would go out of his way to avoid Samaritan soil. 
No Jewish person had to go through Samaria, but John 4, 4 says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. As he made his way there, it was a hot, sweltering Palestinian day. Jesus sent the disciples into town to get lunch. He reclined right there at Jacob's well. In the middle of the day, about high noon, a woman came, a solitary woman came, and Jesus asked her for a drink. Now, what makes this so astounding is that not only was she a she, but she was a Samaritan she. And no Jewish rabbi would ever talk to a woman, not in public, and especially not a Samaritan woman. This woman picks up on this and she says, why are you asking me for a drink? You are a Jewish rabbi. And Jesus said, if you knew who was asking for a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Water that would spring up inside of you to eternal life. She thought he was talking about literal H2O. He was referencing spiritual H2O. She said, sir, you have nothing to draw this water with. The well is deep. It's over 200 feet deep. How in the world are you going to get this quote-unquote living water? And Jesus says in so many words, if you just take a tall drink of me, living water will well up inside of you to eternal life. She asked, how can I get this water? She's on the brink of salvation. She's about ready to walk the aisle, fill out the card. If you listen closely, you can hear just as I am playing in the background. I mean, Jesus is about to cast the net and draw it in. And before he does, he says, go get your husband. Her eyes look down. She's beginning to dance and dart. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right when you say you have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands. And the man you're shacking up with right now, he ain't your husband either, is he? You think to yourself, Jesus, what are you doing? I mean, if you want this girl to come into the kingdom, this is not the way you do it. You don't talk about and identify all of her failed marriages and broken relationships. Jesus, what are you doing? This shocked this woman. She dropped her bucket. She went back into town. She asked some of the people, hey, listen, I met a man who's told me everything I've ever done. Could this man be the Messiah? They began to laugh. They said to each other, they said to her, listen, gal, everybody in this village can tell you what you've always done and who you've done it with. That's not a big secret. She said, no, 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 but I've met a man and he could be the Messiah, right? Jesus had a knack of blurring the lines. On another occasion, Jesus was approached by a hotshot millennial lawyer. This lawyer was fresh out of law school. He came up to him and asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus took the lawyer back to the law. What does the law say and how do you read it? He said, well, the law says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you do this and you'll live. Now, this hotshot young lawyer, he thought he understood what it meant to love God with all the stuff that's inside of him. But loving neighbor, that was problematic. He wanted to know who he had to be neighborly towards and who he could ignore. So he asked the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus flung one of those well-spun stories. There was a Jewish man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell into the hands of robbers. They beat him, stripped him, left him half dead. He was lying there in the road in his own pool of blood. Lucky for him, his pastor was coming by that way. 
He thought to himself, certainly my pastor will stop and help me. But the pastor thought to himself, I can't get my hands dirty. If I touch that man and his blood, I'll be defiled. I've got too many places to go, too many people to see. So he crossed the street and passed by on the other side. That's sad. But then, not long after that, a deacon walked past. Now, if the pastor won't stop, certainly a deacon will stop. And so he thought to himself, surely this deacon will stop and help me. But the deacon sat there and thought to himself, now, wait a minute. I've got too many places to go and too many people to see. I can't just get in there and get my hands dirty, and then I'll be defiled. So he followed the lead of his pastor, and he crossed the street and passed by on the other side. Jesus then said a Samaritan came by. The Samaritan saw the man, saw the blood, And he took pity on the man. He went and bandaged his wounds. He placed the man on his own beast of burden. He took him into town. He watched him all night long. The next morning, the Samaritan gave the innkeeper two silver coins. He said, if you incur any additional expense, you know I'm good for it. Next time I come through, I'll reimburse you. And Jesus said, which man was a neighbor to the Jewish man that fell into the hands of the robbers? That hotshot lawyer could not even say the word Samaritan. He simply said the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, then go and do likewise. Jesus has a knack of blurring the lines so that the people of God go to anyone on the planet, Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When you and I come to our story, we find the man named Philip. He is a disciple. How do you know that? Because he's a believer who's passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough. He makes his way to a Samaritan village, and there he preaches Christ. Revival breaks out. In fact, it says that in those opening lines of Acts chapter 8, that there was great joy in that city. Whenever Jesus is around, there's joy in the city. If Jesus is Lord of the city, there's joy in the city. If Jesus is Lord of the marriage, there's joy in the marriage. If Jesus is Lord of the house, there's joy in the house. If Jesus is Lord of the life, there's joy in the life. Wherever there is Jesus, there is joy. It's a joy that the world can't take away. It's a joy that circumstances cannot cripple. It is a joy that disease cannot debilitate. It is an everlasting joy. And here in Acts chapter 8, in that Samaritan city, there was great joy. And Philip had a tremendous ministry. It was a mega church ministry. It was the ministry that you always dream for. It is a great, great ministry where people are being saved and lives are being transformed. And then you come to our passage. Verse 26, the angel of the Lord said to Philip, go to that road, that desert road that goes south from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he went. Do you know what's attractive about the Gaza Road? Nothing. Do you know what's alluring about ministry on the Gaza Road? Nothing. Do you know what would potentially draw someone from a ministry of many to a ministry of one on the Gaza Road? Nothing. There is nothing on the Gaza Road. The only thing there is dirt, rocks, and sand, and more dirt, and more rocks, and more sand. In fact, in his literary uh, work entitled The Iliad, it is Homer who says that Ethiopia is the last place on the planet, and Gaza is the last watering hole before you get to the last place on the planet. There is nothing on the Gaza Road. 
There is nothing that would attract someone to go there. Yet Philip does. Why? Why does Philip leave a thriving ministry of many to go to potentially a ministry of one? The only explanation I can give is this, that Philip was obsessed with obedience to the Spirit of God. That's the only good answer I can, come, I can come up with. The only reason that Philip did this is because he was obsessed with obedience to the Spirit of God. You show me a disciple, somebody who's passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough, I'll show you somebody who is obsessed with obedience to the Spirit of God. This story is not about Philip. This story is not even about the Ethiopian eunuch. This story is about the Spirit of God. The Spirit is mentioned in Acts chapter 8, eight times. It is mentioned or referenced. It's the Spirit of God that's directing everything. The Spirit of God is pulling the strings. The Spirit of God is prompting people, guiding people, directing people, transforming people, transplanting people. It is the Spirit of, this is a Spirit-saturated story. This is a story about the power of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of the Lord says to Philip, I need you to go to Gaza. So he leaves a ministry of many for a ministry of one. This begs the question, doesn't it? What are you obsessed with? It's not a question of are you obsessed? All of us are obsessed. What are we obsessed with? Are we obsessed with our friends, our family? Our Instagram followers? Are we obsessed with our sports, our shopping? Are we obsessed with our spouse, our jobs? Are we obsessed with our goals, our dreams, our fears, our future? What are we obsessed with? What do we think about the most? What do we make it our aim to please? And, and what do we rearrange our schedule for? All those are questions that reveal the obsession of our lives. Who do you think about the most? Who do you make it your aim to please? And who do you rearrange your schedule for? You answer those questions, it reveals your obsession. If Philip was asked those questions, he would say, I am obsessed about being obedient to the Spirit of the Lord. And Philip goes from a mega church ministry to Gaza. It's a forsaken place. It's, it's an abandoned place. Nobody goes to Gaza, but Philip goes to Gaza. Dr. Luke, who's the author of Acts, he makes a significant shift in his storytelling when you get to Acts chapters 8, 9, and 10. Up until now, it really has been a description of how massive the church is. In Acts chapter 1, the church is only about 120 believers. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved. Think about that. In one day, the church membership went from 120 to 3,120. Can you imagine if 3,000 people joined this church today? Logistics would be crazy. It would be a nightmare. Where are we going to park all these people? Where are we going to place all these people? The nursery? The nursery would be a zoo, right? But on this day, uh, 2,000 years ago, some 3,000 people were added to the church. When you get to Acts chapter 4, verse 4, it is Luke who tells us that the church had grown to include 5,000 men. Now, that doesn't count women and children. So that must mean if there are 5,000 men, there are probably at least 5,000 ladies. If there are 10,000 adults, there are probably 10,000 children. We're talking about the church now is a mega church model. It is 20,000 people strong. 
But you get to Acts chapter 8. And Luke tells the story of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. And in chapter 9, he tells one story of the conversion of the religious terrorist called Saul, who we later call Paul. And in chapter 10, he tells one story of the conversion of the Gentile man who's a Roman centurion named Cornelius. It's, it's an amazing movement. It, it's, an, it's an amazing shift in how he tells the story. He goes from these massive numbers down to these individual stories. It's as if Luke wants us to know the kingdom of God grows one person at a time. The church of Jesus Christ grows one person at a time. Do you know why you would go from a ministry of many to a ministry of one? Because that one person on the Gaza road actually matters to God. So Philip goes down in obedience to the Spirit of God and he goes down to that Gaza road and the Spirit of the Lord says to him, I want you to run beside that chariot. So Philip this is, this is weird, this is odd, but he just runs beside the chariot. A disciple is a believer who's passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough. You show me somebody who's passionately persuaded, I'll show you someone who is obsessed with obedience, but secondly, this person will run beside brokenness. That's exactly what Philip does. He runs beside an Ethiopian eunuch. You can't get two more polar opposite people than a Jewish man and an Ethiopian man. You can't get two more polar opposites. This would be like if Dustin Hoffman met Denzel Washington. It's exactly what this is like. I mean, you got the Jewish guy and he meets some guy with star-studded Hollywood good looks. This, this man is an Ethiopian eunuch. To say he's an Ethiopian eunuch is to say something about his country and to say something about his condition. He's Ethiopian, which means he's from Ethiopia. He is an African. He's a eunuch. That means that he's been castrated by either cutting or crushing the male genitalia. Now, even me saying that, makes every man I know squirm just a bit. But for some reason in those days, this would have been regarded as something that is respectable. Many eunuchs had great jobs. In fact, this man has a great job. He is well-respected. He is trustworthy. He is in charge of all of the finances of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. He holds the purse strings of all the money uh, there in Ethiopia. He is a man of great, great influence. This Ethiopian eunuch, he is seeking God. Daryl Bach, in his commentary on the book of Acts, says that this man's in the midst of a five-month journey. Five months. It would have taken him several months to go from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. And then once he got to Jerusalem, he would have been denied access into the temple because according to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, anyone who's been castrated by crushing or cutting will not be allowed entrance into the sacred assembly of the Lord. So you talk about disappointment. He got to Jerusalem hoping to find the answers of life. He went there hoping to worship the Lord. And when he got in, he was not allowed to enter into the holy sanctuary. Somewhere along the way, he picked up the 
scroll of Isaiah, he's on his way back home to Ethiopia and he's reading the scroll. Now all of that tells you that this man has great wealth. He has his own chariot. Not everybody has a chariot in the first century. And he owns his own copy of the scroll of Isaiah. In those days, parchments were pricey. This man is very wealthy. No, is he wealthy? He's extremely educated. This man can read. He is reading from the prophet Isaiah. You and I have to assume that most people in these days were illiterate. This man is not illiterate. He gets it. He reads it. He understands it. He understands the words. He can parse them together appropriately. He can read what's on the parchment. And Philip runs beside him. He asks a very innocent question. Do you understand what you're reading? He's not bombastic. He's not rude. He's not arrogant. He's not heavy-handed. He just asks the question, do you understand what you are reading? It's at this moment that I'm really impressed with Philip. Because Philip is willing to run beside not only Samaritans, but also eunuchs. That's amazing. Before Acts chapter 8, if you had interviewed Philip, and if you had asked him, who are the last people on the planet that you think Jesus is going to call you to to tell them about Christ? Who would you say, Philip? I promise you that near the top of the list, he would have said, it will not be Samaritans. I promise you that much. It will not be Samaritans. And probably it won't be Ethiopian eunuchs either. Yet, in Acts chapter 8, Philip goes to both Samaritans and Ethiopian eunuchs. That too begs the question, doesn't it? Who is the last person that you want to share Christ with? That if the Spirit of the Lord said, I need you to go to this group of people, or I need you to go to this individual, you would think to yourself, Jesus, wait a minute, there are a lot of other people I can go to. Why that person? Why that group? Who are your Samaritans? Who are your Ethiopian eunuchs? We all have them. Who are they? Maybe maybe it's the LGBT community. You think to yourself, I just don't understand that community. I don't agree with their lifestyle. And if Jesus were to ask me to go there, I would think to myself, now, wait a minute, Jesus. I go to a lot of other people, but that only represents 3% of the American culture. Can't you send me to some other 97% of the American culture? Who's your Ethiopian eunuch? Who are your Samaritans? Maybe it's not the LGBT community. Maybe, maybe it's a left-winged Democrat Maybe it's a right-winged Republican. Maybe it's a politician in general. You say, Jesus, just don't send me to politicians. I'll go to anybody else, but not them. Maybe, maybe it's the black family that moved in right across the street. Maybe it's a Hispanic couple that moved in right beside you. Maybe it's the Asian family that lives five doors down from you. Maybe it's your uncle. Maybe it's your cousin. (laughs) Maybe it's even your spouse. You think to yourself, Jesus, I can talk to anybody, but not him. I can talk to anybody, but not her. I can go anywhere, but not there. Not for them. Who are your Samaritans? Who are your Ethiopian eunuchs? What makes this story so amazing is that Philip 
is passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough. How do you know that? You know it because he's willing to run beside brokenness. He runs beside this man's chariot. He realizes that this man is educated, this man is influential, but this man has absolutely no insight. The Ethiopian eunuch orders for the chariot to be stopped. He asks for Philip to come and sit beside him. And Philip notices that this man is reading from Isaiah 53. Verses 7 and 8. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Tell me, please, sir, who is this man talking about? Is the prophet referencing himself or someone else? Please tell me who is he talking about? And Philip began with that very passage of scripture and gave him the good news about Jesus. That Greek word good news is euangelion. It's the word gospel. From that very moment, he told him the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You show me somebody who's passionately persuaded. They will not only be obsessed with obedience, they'll not only be willing to run beside brokenness, but third and finally, they'll be eager to talk about Jesus. He started with that very passage of scripture and gave him the euangelion, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that in Isaiah chapter 53, the gospel is found in that suffering servant song. There's a reference to the death of Jesus and the burial of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus right there in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verses four and five. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. That is a reference to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You drop down to verse 9 of Isaiah 53. He, being the suffering servant, was assigned a grave with the wicked. That's an image and reference of his tomb. In verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days. How in the world can the suffering servant see his offspring and prolong his days apart from resurrection? In Isaiah chapter 53, you see the cross, the tomb, and the resurrection. And there is Philip, and he is eager to talk about Jesus. And he just simply begins with that very passage of scripture. And he shares the euangelion, the gospel. When you and I are being disciples, when we are running along chariots, when we are engaging people up and down 31, around 280, in Hoover, Helena, Alabaster, uh, around the world, when we engage people, we just take them where they are and we share the good news of Jesus Christ. We tell them the gospel, the euangelion, the good news. You know what Philip did? after he talked to the Ethiopian eunuch about Isaiah 53, they talked about Isaiah 54 because it's a long journey. It's a five-month journey. It's a long desert road. You know what happens after they read through and discuss and describe Isaiah 54? They get to Isaiah 55. You know what happens after they unwind Isaiah 55 and kind of break it down, put the cookies on the bottom shelf so everybody can understand it? You know what happens after they talk about Isaiah 55? 
Okay, y'all should be catching on by now. They talk about Isaiah 56. That's right. Have you ever read Isaiah 56? Have you ever read Isaiah 56 verses three and four? Let me read them for you. And listen to the profound picture that God portrays in Isaiah 56, keeping in mind that Philip is talking about this to an Ethiopian eunuch. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord has surely excluded me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name. Don't miss this. I will give them an everlasting name. Are you listening? Don't miss it. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Philip is sharing this with an Ethiopian eunuch. Come on now. You can't miss the irony in in English and you can't miss the irony in Hebrew. It's right there. The Lord says to the eunuch, listen, if you're with me, you're not cut off. I know that the world says you're excluded, but I have included you. I know the world says you're blemished, but I have blessed you. I know that the culture has ridiculed you, but Christ has come to rescue you. I know that the world says you're a nobody, but I say you're a somebody before the problem ever came to the Ethiopian's life God had already sent the solution now that ought to make somebody happy in the house this morning if the Bible is a mirror that reflects who we are what Philip is doing he's taking the Ethiopian back to the scripture and as he's unrolling the scroll of Isaiah he's saying hey you were on God's mind hundreds of years before you ever existed. That same message is true today, my friend. You may walk in this place thinking that you're blemished. You can be blessed. The world may tell you that you are a nobody, but God says you are a somebody. The world may ridicule you, but Christ has come to rescue and redeem you. You, my friend, may find yourself and you say, you know what? I don't look like Philip. I look more like like the Ethiopian eunuch. I am torn up inside. And God says, I've got your solution before you ever knew about your problem. Philip is ready to talk about Jesus. They get to some water, and the Ethiopian says, well, then why should not be baptized? Which tells me that somewhere along the way of the presentation of the euangelion, that Philip talked about baptism, the importance of it, the symbolic nature of it, yes, but the importance of it. The Ethiopian says, well, there's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Philip says, I can't think of a good reason why you shouldn't. The Ethiopian orders for the chariot to be stopped. Both Philip and the Ethiopian go down into the water and Philip baptizes him in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And when the Ethiopian is brought back up out of the water, Philip vanishes. Would that not freak you out? But the Ethiopian eunuch is not phased. In fact, it says that he goes on rejoicing. Once again, when Jesus is Lord of the life, there is joy in the life. He goes back rejoicing. 
What does he do when he gets home? He tells people about Jesus. Historians say that this man is the reason why Ethiopia was evangelized. And some even say that the entire continent of Africa was influenced because of this one man's testimony. That we can look and see what the Lord is doing on the continent even today in Africa. And we can trace that back to this man in Acts chapter 8. It is one life that is transformed. It is one person who becomes a disciple. What is a disciple? A disciple is a believer who is passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough. And so that person is obsessed with obedience and willing to run beside brokenness and eager to talk about Jesus. What happened to Philip? Well, Philip vanished, but then he went to Azotus and he was preaching the Christ there. And then he finally went to Caesarea. We do pick up and bump into Philip again. It's 20 years later. It's in Acts chapter 21. And when we find Philip in Acts chapter 21, do you know what Philip is doing? He is preaching Christ in Caesarea. He's being a disciple wherever he's been planted. The last place that God plopped Philip, that's the next place that we find Philip. And he stays there until he gets more marching orders. My friends, that's how you and I live the Christian life. We are directed by the Spirit of God. When he tells us to stop and stay, we stay there and we are passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough. And we don't go anywhere until Jesus takes us and takes us someplace else to go. So Jesus said, I need you to stay in Caesarea. 20 years later, he's still in Caesarea. And what's he doing? He's being obsessed with obedience to the Spirit of God. He is running beside broken people. And he's eager to talk about Jesus. My friends, that's what a disciple is. You know, we talk about making a disciple for global impact. That's a disciple. This is a portrait of a disciple. A disciple is a believer who is passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough. Is that you today? Are you passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough? Regardless of your problem, predicament, or prognosis. Regardless of your doubt, dilemma, or despair. Are you passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough? If you say, Pastor, I don't know. Can I tell you today that he is enough? He is enough regardless of what you're going through. And if you come in today and you are blemished, you come in today and you're lost, you come in today not knowing Jesus in a personal way, today can be the day of your salvation. And if you are a believer, don't be anything less than passionately persuaded that Jesus is enough. He deserves it and he demands it of us. We have to be persuaded that Christ is enough. Is that you, my friend? That's what it means to be a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. There's some divine appointments that need to happen this morning. There's some people who need to respond to you in faith. Some of us need to come for the very first time. Some of us need to cast all of our cares upon the one who cares so very much for us. Some of us need to come and join this church. Some of us just need to be passionately persuaded that you are enough. Regardless, I pray this, this morning 
that Jesus, you're pleased with this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.